This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver's leading cryptocurrency podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, are you excited for Ethereum or are oh, you uh, riveting Ripple. for Ripple? I'm, I'm riveting, I would say. <laughs> Don't ask me why. But, uh, it sounds more delicious. You know what? It's uh, it's funny because, uh, you know, with the new blockchain, we're... We're taking suit here. We're changing changing things up here. This is about how to buy condos with Bitcoin. Yeah. Not well, really. Well, the thing is, is we've had a couple. This is the crazy part is we've had a few people reach out to us in 2018 already. Asking I think three about, or four, yeah. Asking about how to buy condos with Bitcoin. Yeah. And there's a couple striking things about that. One is it's probably a sign of the future and it probably will be easier. Potentially. Moving forward. But um, one guy specifically literally said, I couldn't afford to buy. Uh, I've been thinking about, you know, how I wished I could buy for 12 years. Now I'm looking in the 2 to $5 million range. All these newly minted millionaires. And, and the craziest thing about it is uh, that, yeah, pre-sales in the matrix, eh? Yeah, no That's kidding. The next, well, uh, and if, if there's any uh, word to the wise here, he's saying he's going to sell in about five and a half months. Yeah. Six months he thinks it's gone. Yeah, but back to real estate, because to be honest, I don't think either of us are bright enough to understand cryptocurrency. I'm not even sure how to say it. Yeah, but Braden, on the other hand, also not bright enough. <laughs> but I got some. <laughs> Great. Definitely well, can't spell it. I don't understand how to buy it. I mean, mm. we were we were laughing at the office. You, you got to like send a guy to a bank. You go to some like 
numbered company that you have to send money to. Well, the, and, then it, yeah, and, and not only that, it takes like a week for it to actually go through a transaction. Like it no, strikes me no. as the strangest. Doesn't it take? Doesn't it take? No, like ride a donkey well, through a trail in Colombia. Well, yeah. that's our buddy Dave that that sent a donkey to Japan <laughs> with five thousand dollars on it, but. No, you can actually figure out, you can buy it instantly. A lot of the coins, or a couple of them, you buy instantly. And where where can, do you do this, Brady? Uh, Coinbase no, you can the wave, use. The Waves Coffee on How. Or, <laughs> or you can give a guy 10% and buy him a Waves Coffee on How. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got to ask for that special blend. Anyway, sign up uh, on our website if you want to know more about <laughs> cryptocurrency, because clearly we're the experts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, but we've got a super exciting show. We've got Daniel Hebert. He is a professor of geography at the University of British Columbia. I'm excited for this interview. I, I actually, uh, we just finished up chatting with Daniel. It's fascinating. Yeah. His, his research is, is great. Yeah, he talks about the differences between immigrant groups coming to Canada and when they buy real estate, how they buy real estate, the percentages differing in cities as well. So it's really kind of interesting to think about Vancouver in that context. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I we've been we've been kind of going back and forth with with previous guests about this notion of kind of culture, home ownership, real estate investing, but then also kind of the the broader themes about um, you know demonizing newcomers and and uh, you know kind of the the scapegoats in our market. Yeah, and we've had conversations about this, but I do feel like this conversation shed a lot of light on on some of our our previous questions and maybe. Maybe Daniel was kind of the the right guest to kind of address some of these issues that confront mm, our market, right? Definitely, definitely. Yeah, he's uh, he's super insightful and he's definitely thought a lot about it. So it's uh, no, it's a useful conversation. So, so stay, stay tuned. tuned for that. But Matt, before we get to that, um, I hear you're uh, got a new gymnastics <laughs> career in front of you. You might yeah. be, we might be leaving <laughs> cryptocurrency for gymnastics. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Yeah, you're clearly talking about my trampoline world experience. <laughs> you went to, so first of all, t- tell me what, so I don't know what trampoline okay, world so here's, is. Okay, so here's the thing. Yeah, I have a six-year-old and she was out of school last week. So right. I think on Friday, I took her and one of her friends to, I, I don't know what it's called, trampoline world, something like that in Richmond. You and your wife? Or? Yeah, it's. Uh, but it's like a really... I've never been there. It's, you know, it's got half pipes that are made out of trampolines. You can do, you know, I wasn't excited. We got there. Uh, I thought I was going to just pay for them and sit on the sidelines and watch. And then I saw some people doing, you know, the videos of these guys doing like rodeo, rodeo flips. flips and yeah. <laughs> immediately my interest was piqued because, you know. Because you're what we'd call a uh, very agile, young, <laughs> yeah. potentially professional Overweight, middle-aged uh, yeah. guy, yeah. So anyway, I was like, 16 bucks, sign me up, right? Yeah. So the three of us go in. For how long does, what is 16 bucks fight? It was an, a, an hour and a half. Okay. But believe me, after about a minute and a half, you're done. Like it's, it's. <laughs> if you're you. Yeah. Like <laughs> or, once, or me. Yeah, or once me, you go, you jump over about a foot, you know, when your teeth are rattling when you land and you're like, no, I'm too old for this. It's a, it's a workout for sure. Yeah. So no, I mean, the reason you're bringing this up, I think, is I, I told you earlier, like, they have cameras inside <laughs> the trampoline park. And what I didn't realize is it's on a 10-second delay. So I was, you know, jumping around like, you know, in your mind where you think you're really doing yeah. stuff that's like I was, you're, you're, I was doing uh, the butt yeah. drop. And I was like, oh, man, I look amazing out here. Like this is. The like, kids the, are watching me yeah, going. Yeah, and the adult that's killing it in, in yeah. here. And uh, so I go across these trampolines and I, I land it fluidly and walk right. off and then look up at this. It's like, oh, look at that fat guy. I was thinking I look like, up at the screen, right? You must look better than him. Yeah, I was like, oh, yeah. how embarrassing for this guy. Uh, it's you. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> 
it was me and it was insane i was jumping about an inch and a half between jumps like it was like it looked like I, like when i saw that guy who turned out to be me i was like it's like he's not on a trampoline yeah. it's like he's just jumping on the ground <laughs> to be fair though it's 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 us in this room right like it's not necessarily dependent on your age like there's i follow some guys on instagram like you know, Vancouver skateboard staple. Oh, yeah. Uh, what's his name? Sluggo, Rob Boyce. Yeah. I mean, he's like, I don't know how he's old Sluggo is, he's but he's older than, than us. us. Yeah. And he's like, you know, backflipping into a half pipe yeah. every afternoon. No, it's specifically me. I think it's amazing. I, I called my wife at one point because of the half pipe. Right. Uh, I was like, hey, you got to come in here and see this. Yeah. And she came in and was like, that was insanely like, bad. <laughs> it was like, this is pathetic. We're yeah, going she home. was like, I can't even believe you called me in here. Like, I'm embarrassed for everyone. <laughs> anyway. Oh, uh, great. Good yeah. stuff. Well, hey, maybe uh, <laughs> on that note, uh, let's get to our uh, incredible interview with uh, geographer Daniel Hebert. Enjoy, guys. Okay, so we're here with Daniel Hebert, professor of geographer at UBC. How are you doing, Daniel? I'm doing fine, thanks. Hi, Daniel. Thanks a lot for joining us. Can you maybe just start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Um, so I've been uh, at UBC a long time, and the work that I do is primarily around immigration policy and immigration outcomes. Uh, I do that to some degree in other countries, but I'm mainly focused on Canada and in the Canadian context, I look mostly at how these things play out in cities. Uh, that's uh, an obvious thing because most immigrants actually settle in cities in Canada. So I've put a lot of energy into thinking about uh, how immigrants get incorporated into the labor markets and housing markets and um, neighborhood structures of, of places like um, Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, and, and some of the other sort of mid-sized Canadian cities. Right. And this actually ties into why we wanted to have you on this morning, Daniel. Um, you recently published an article in the Canadian Journal of Urban Research titled Immigrants and Refugees in the Housing Markets of Montreal, Toronto and Vancouver, 2011. Can you maybe um, unpack some of your findings or let us know what, what you found that was most surprising in your in your research? Yeah, sure. So uh, the, the title kind of gives a sense of the topic of the article. It's it's on uh, how these newcomers have become incorporated into the housing markets of those of the three big cities of Canada, and so I was looking at um, several things. First of all, uh, the the uh, propensity for people to uh, to buy a home. Uh, I was also looking at um, the ratio then of homeowners versus people who are renting, and I was also looking at the relationship between uh, mortgage payments or rental payments and household income. And I did that for uh, immigrants again in the three cities of Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver. Also, I did it for the different categories of admission of immigrants. So. I uh, did that analysis separately for those who came as economic immigrants, those who came as family immigrants, and those who came as refugees to Canada. So I was looking, you know, it's kind of a complicated story when you when you pull all those pieces apart, but it's it's just looking at how those different um, subpopulations of, of newcomers uh, become uh, involved in the housing market. And, and what are some of the key takeaways that you found? Probably the single most important thing is the rapidity with which people enter into home ownership. 
Uh, and that that is particularly true in Toronto and Vancouver, a little bit less so in Montreal. Uh, in Montreal, I guess you could say there's there's more of a culture of renting uh, in that metropolitan area. Uh, only roughly half of the population of Montreal owns uh, owns their homes, so that that's a kind of a different dynamic. Whereas in in Vancouver and Toronto, home ownership is more like uh, two thirds of the population, even approaching seventy percent, uh, generally speaking, uh, across the whole population. And so it's it's interesting how quickly immigrants uh, enter into the, those sorts of patterns. So uh, both in, in Toronto and Vancouver, uh, immigrants over a, a quite short amount of time uh, hit that population rate of 65 or 70 percent home ownership. Uh, and again, it's, it also happens in Montreal, but it's a little bit of a lower rate. So that's like the first big point that I'd make. Daniel, sorry, just on that first point, do you think it's a culture of the city or is it the type of immigrant groups that are arriving? You mean uh, differentiating Toronto, Vancouver on the one exactly, hand, exactly? Like I'm interested why Montreal is is different. Is it is it something to do with the Canadian context or the the immigrants that are attracted to those cities? A little bit of both, but my my theory is is a little I don't know idiosyncratic. I, I think maybe, but my my theory of this is that. There's no kind of push for home ownership in Montreal because the market isn't rising as rapidly. So in Toronto and Vancouver, if you end up living in one of those two cities, you think to yourself, well, if I don't buy a home quickly, I'm going to get locked out of the market um, uh-huh. because I can't save fast enough to keep on track with the with the rising cost of a down payment. So the earlier you get in, the better. Whereas in Montreal, if you if you think about that city, there's like no huge increase on the horizon in the housing markets. You've got more time. You can you can uh, assemble more money. Everything's on a calmer kind of a pace. So so that's my general theory. It's the dynamics of the housing market itself that kind of leads people to feel like like they better invest in it, or maybe they don't really have to. Is that making sense? Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah, very interesting. And sorry, I cut you off because you were saying that was your kind of first takeaway. And maybe can you speak to some of the other key takeaways? Yeah, well, the the third one is probably the finding that surprised me the most and that, you know, when I talk about this material in presentations, tends to surprise the audience the most. And, and that is the fact that this process of, of gaining home ownership isn't just happening for economic immigrants, but it's also happening for family class immigrants and even for refugees. I think that's something that few people really would have appreciated uh, before looking at these data. So I'm just uh, I'm looking at my paper right, right now, just so I can give you the numbers here a little bit more more clearly. But so so I'm looking now. At it, it's the fifth figure in the paper. It's it's on the home ownership of refugees. And let's just think about Toronto because Toronto has about half of all the refugees that come to Canada, and those refugees that have arrived within the first five years in Toronto already have a home ownership rate of a third, which is kind wow. of incredible, right? You think about the cost of the Toronto yeah. housing market, and a third of refugees uh, own a home uh, within five years. And, and here's where it gets really quite remarkable. For those refugees who have been in Toronto more than 20 years, they have a home ownership rate that actually exceeds the population as a whole. It's 75%. Uh, three quarters, um, and and when you think that refugees are people who've undertaken massive disruption in their lives, they've mostly lost everything. They've crossed an ocean. They've come to a new place, speaking a new language, 
uh, and somehow, you know, within five years, a third of them own a home in, a, in an expensive housing market, and in 20 years, three quarters of them own a home. So that that's like a pretty big point that that I make in the paper, and and one of the things that I link that point to, uh, which I think is a very important uh, issue, is that it's a clear indication that the majority of the refugee population becomes not only self-sufficient, but actually uh, thrives economically in Canada. So that that's like a pretty big third point that I make in the paper. What strikes me about that is that often people talk about immigrants leaving the country of origin of their own volition. It takes a sort of a certain type of person to to do that, and somebody that's energetic and adventurous and potentially entrepreneurial. Refugees, on the other hand, are forced out. That's is that is that that's why it strikes me as so surprising. Yep. No, I, that's a really nice way of putting it. That, that's why uh, this is the part of the paper that surprised me the most. I would have thought that that would be a population that would kind of linger in, in uh, rental circumstances for longer uh, and um, would really have little prospect of home ownership. But yet, that's just not the case. Oh, and then I should say the fourth big uh, finding of the paper is that although the story is generally positive across all these different groups, including refugees, there's a fraction of the immigrant and refugee population that does end up in that kind of stuck position in the housing market that are uh, renting very high ratio of their income is going into their housing and they, they, they just don't seem to be able to move up uh, in the housing market. And that can be the case even for those who've been in Canada as long as 20 to 30 years. So, so it's mainly a good story, but there's sort of a residual, more depressing story that's in the data as well. So Daniel, I'm I'm just curious. Did you, did you see a, a link between culture, home ownership, and real estate investing? Uh, so um, I did also look. I, I think I'm going to answer your question, but let me just make sure I'm answering your question. I also looked at home ownership across different visible minority categories. Is that what what you're getting yeah. at? Yeah, I mean of, that's been you know which group is owning and which group isn't. Yeah, yeah. So that isn't actually in this paper very much. It's it's in there a little bit, but but I, I've got another paper that's going to come out in a while that's going to get into that in a lot more detail. But um, I'm just looking right now at the most recent immigrants and refugees across these three cities. So I'm just looking at a particular table that's in the paper. And what it shows is that ownership rates vary really a lot between different categories uh, based on, on, well, what Canada defines as visible minority. So uh, if I'm looking, let's say, at Toronto, and again, it's it's the most useful one to look at just simply because of its scale. Okay. Um, if if you, you look at the top end, uh, those who self-identify as Chinese, so in in the um, in the census, people are given a question, you know, are you, and a whole bunch of different possibilities. Right. So people who tick the box that say, yeah, I'm Chinese. Um, in Toronto, they have a home ownership rate, uh, and this is just the folks who came within five years. Uh, Chinese already have a home ownership rate of seventy-three percent. Wow. Uh, and and if you look at the other end of the scale. Uh, for those who self-identify as black, uh, that home ownership rate is 32%. So that's a pretty big gap. Mm-hmm. And that, those are the bookends, right? Those are the, the, the highest and the lowest uh, of, the, of, of the groups that came in the last five years. So you, you get a sense of a pretty profound set of differences across, uh, across different cultural groups. And, and how about, like, was there anything that stood out in terms of Vancouver? 
Yeah, so I, uh, since I'm looking at the table right now on different groups and, and their home ownership rates, uh, maybe I'll start there, and then I'll, I can also backtrack to the issue of, of uh, refugees and, and home ownership as well. Uh, since I gave those numbers for Toronto, I can give them for Vancouver too. So if we just go back to what I said just like one minute ago, this is the, the differentials, uh, home ownership rate amongst groups by their visible minority um, uh, self-identification. So like in Toronto, uh, the bookends are basically on the very high end, it's Chinese. Uh, but unlike Toronto, the low end, which I find quite interesting, is actually Filipinos uh, in Vancouver. So uh, on the high end, uh, immigrants and refugees, well, it's basically, basically immigrants who come from China, uh, have within five years a 56% rate uh, of home ownership. And for those who identify themselves as Filipino, it's 21%. So that's, those are the bookends in, in Vancouver. Very low for Filipinos and pretty high for Chinese. And so with our rate of uh, immigrants coming to Vancouver from China currently and presumably in the future, what, what do you think this means for, for Vancouver real estate moving forward? Well, it's more than half purchase housing within five years. So that's a pretty substantial rate of, of home ownership. I should also say that that's true. The more than half figure is also true for those who are coming from Korea, which is another fairly significant source of immigrants to Vancouver. Right. Uh, and also those who come from Western Asia, which are mainly uh, people from Iran, actually. They also have a high rate of home ownership. And that's just in the first five years. And if I just flip my table back a little bit, with those immigrants who come from China, I don't have the numbers right in front of me at this at this second because it's just sort of too hard to paste back and forth in the paper. But the Chinese immigrants reach population rates of home ownership within ten years and then exceed it. Mm-hmm. So, if you know the more immigrants coming from China, obviously the more you're going to see demand for home ownership uh, across Vancouver. So when the media picked up your your paper and discussed it, it was a, there was a lot of talk about immigration policy and housing policy being yep. linked. I guess uh, the question is, should they be linked, and and should the Canadian government change immigration policy based on your findings? So the one thing that I often find a little bit troubling about the way my work is picked up in the media is that there's this conversation in the media on trying to identify the single cause right. for high prices in, in, in places like Toronto and Vancouver. And I think that's kind of, uh, like, I don't want to call people fools, but I think that's a bit of a fool's game. I don't think there is a single cause for high prices uh, in, in certain housing markets. I mean, that's a very complicated story that has a whole bunch of ingredients, like what's the prevailing interest rate, um, uh, what does household formation look like? What what does migration look like, both out migration and in migration, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes when people have seen the kind of work I do, they, they kind of say, aha, immigrants are buying houses. Therefore, right. that's the single cause of why we have expensive houses in Vancouver. And and uh, I'm a bit troubled by that particular reaction because I, I just think it's it's an ingredient. It's an important ingredient, but it's an ingredient in a complicated story. So that's the that's like the first point I want to make. Um, second point is to get to this idea of the link between uh, immigration policy and housing policy. You know what what I say in the in the paper. I'm, I'm going to stand by since the paper's only published this week. I am, haven't changed my mind yet. But it's true. I mean, you you bring in immigrants, and if 
you know, you get a homeownership acquisition rate that's really fast and really high, it has an impact on the housing market. So in that sense, uh, the, the number of immigrants that Canada chooses to bring in has a direct implication in terms of how the housing market functions, especially in the larger cities of Canada and really especially in, in Toronto and Vancouver where these numbers are uh, and scale is the largest. Does that mean Canada should change its immigration policy? I think the trajectory of immigration policy in Canada over the last 20 years has been pretty consistent uh, and it's been both to have reasonably high numbers, but also to so, to kind of slowly and subtly encourage people to move uh, or to settle, I should say, uh, in places outside the big cities of Canada. And I think that's a that that that's a a generally smart kind of a way to do things. Uh, I think that immigration generally is a benefit to society. Having that benefit spread more widely across the country is a good thing. So all that then leads me to say, no, I don't think that immigration policy has to change in any dramatic way. I think that the uh, the trajectory it's going in, which is the the spreading the benefits kind of uh, kind of idea, is is uh, is good policy. We just spoke to a, a writer for an investment magazine who was pointing to Winnipeg as a as a good real estate investment, largely because of what you're talking about the the number of immigrants that are that are headed there. Yeah, well, um, Manitoba is kind of a special case um, because it it has quite a large quota in in what's called the provincial nominee program. So basically, all the provinces and territories of Canada have made uh, negotiations with Ottawa. To, to get um, to get access to a, a number of, of uh, provincial nominees, so each each of those jurisdictions gets a certain number. You know, you get one thousand, you get eight thousand, you get twelve thousand, whatever that whatever that number might be. It's a tough negotiation process that happens, and uh, for kind of interesting reasons, Manitoba has been very successful in those negotiations, and and it gets a pretty uh, pretty robust number of provincial nominees each year. And I said for complicated reasons, actually, they're maybe not so complicated. Manitoba has a really low unemployment rate, and yet it doesn't generally attract immigrants to the regular system. Mm. So to resolve that particular issue, Ottawa has been pretty generous in allowing Manitoba to nominate uh, to nominate immigrants uh, because they clearly need it from a labor market point of view. And so that's led to pretty robust numbers of immigrants coming into Manitoba. And, you know, most of them, like in most places, go to the biggest city in, in the region. So they end up in Winnipeg. And um, therefore, you know, your investor person uh, makes some sense. You know, that's, that, that is a place that's going to see a continuing stream of immigrants coming in. They're going to have a very high propensity to purchase housing very quickly. And uh, that's kind of a pretty predictable result. So, Daniel, maybe picking up on an earlier question, there's a historical precedent to demonize newcomers when a society is facing challenges, in this case, affordability. Um, are we at risk in Vancouver when it comes to discussing, uh, are we at risk of, of doing this when uh, when it comes to discussing housing and immigration? Well, I think that happens occasionally when the discussion gets really um, polarized and, and, and sharp. Um, I don't know whether this really means anything, but um, to just give you one example, so this uh, there was a, a write-up of my uh, paper in in uh, the Vancouver Sun, 
And within a day, I got a couple of messages from white supremacists types that are really angry at anything that wow. I, I've said that that leads to, you know, diversity is 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 a positive feature in Canadian society or, you know, uh, there are um, important positive effects in immigrants coming to Canada. Whenever I say anything like that, you know, there's, there's a there's a group that, that just wants to sort of uh, kick me around a bit. Um, there's there's like a polarization that happens around these issues. And and I find that just so unhelpful. I what I strive for and what I hope happens is that we get real data to really understand what's going on, and we put that in front of the public, and we, you know, make it as accessible as possible. That's what this article is all about, actually. One of the one of, one of my, you know, most important criterion uh, criteria in deciding where to get this paper published was I wanted it published in an open source journal, so like anybody can get this article right. for free. And I, I just think that's really important for for just encouraging real debate, not not like imaginary debate, but real debate on 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 how these things are taking shape. So, sorry, I've I've kind of gone on a bit of a tangent. Let me try to get myself back to your to your real question about whether there's a potential here for the um, you know stereotyping um, uh, immigrants or or demonizing uh, demonizing people. Um, we bring in immigrants to make positive economic contributions. You know, about two thirds of the immigrants that Canada brings in are economic immigrants. That's the the rationale of the program for the most part. And why would be we be surprised if one of those economic contributions is that they 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 want to plant roots, um, they want to get into you know the the swing of the economies and the societies that they're in. So if we're going to have immigrants, we, we we better just expect they're they're going to enter Canadian society and they're going to they're going to buy housing. That's just what they do. And, and it seems like that's actually a net positive, right? Encouraging people to you know for stability and and everything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, w- I would say so. Um, and I've done research in the past where I've I've uh, interviewed immigrants and asked them, "What do you want here? Like, why did you come? And what is it you want?" in being in Canada. And, you know, it's a pretty straightforward list that would appeal to most people, right? First thing is, I want opportunities for my children. That's like the single, like, highest ambition mm-hmm. that uh, that the immigrants I've spoken with over the years have, have articulated time and time again. That's like priority number one. Number two is getting a job. And number three is buying a house. Um, and And, you know, that that coincides like perfectly with the rationale of our immigration program. So uh, I think it, it's it's rather disingenuous if we then say, well, if you're achieving those object- objectives, we're going to be angry at you. Right. Um, and so, again, I, I make the point that I made earlier that the thrust of policy that makes the most sense is to spread that out. You know, if it's, if it's ultra-concentrated in just a couple of places, that that creates perhaps some um, some potential for difficulty. But if it, you know, the more that that's spread out, that success, that contribution is spread out, I think that the better off we're all going to be. And maybe last question, Daniel, what are your thoughts on the foreign buyers tax? And I'm just thinking of it um, in terms of, you know, perhaps it's necessary policy, but in some respects, it does seem it's different from the processes that you're talking about here. But it seems to signal to the population uh, that the problem is X, right? Like I'm thinking I'm on a Facebook group that talks about Vancouver housing and 
people that, you know, are fairly, by all accounts, it seems like very progressive, <laughs> progressively minded people here in Vancouver that are frustrated with the housing situation, say some pretty anti-immigrant things on there. And it's, the, it all seems, it's complicated and interrelated, but what do you think of that as policy? Well, I'm actually, yeah, I, I, I understand your concern and I, and, and I'll kind of come to it in a minute, but generally speaking, what I wish people would do uh, first and foremost is make like a powerful separation in our minds between foreign buyers and immigrants. They're not the same thing. I mean, right. sometimes they become the same thing over time, but they're not the same thing. The minute a person goes through all that messy application process that we require them to do and gets to Canada and gets a stamp on a piece of paper saying they're a permanent resident of Canada, they're not a foreigner anymore. They're a Canadian. Uh, and, and, and in fact, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms applies to permanent residents just as much as it applies to citizens. The only thing that's different is if they're not yet citizens, they can't vote, but they are Canadian. So I think it, it, what, what, what bothers me is the slippage in the public imagination that when uh, a place like uh, British Columbia or Vancouver puts on a foreign buyer's tax, that people think that has something to do with immigrants. It doesn't. Um, so first point is public education. People ought to know that there's that those are two really different things. Um, second point is I, I'm actually quite uh, quite uh, supportive of the idea of a, of a foreign ownership tax. I mean, to me that that's kind of a sensible way of cooling down the market if 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 there is a significant presence of foreign buyers. And the problem, of course, is we have we we still, even though there was a recent Statistics Canada study on this, we still really don't know the number of foreign buyers in, mm-hmm. a, in a market like Vancouver. Because if you're a smart foreign buyer, what you do is you is is you plunk your money into a, a numbered Canadian company, and then you use the numbered company to buy a house, and that's not tracked by anybody. If you're not as smart a foreign buyer, you actually buy it in your own name, uh, and and then you're going to be paying a 15% tax. So we're taxing the small-scale foreign ownership in, in the Vancouver market. We don't know anything about the bigger scale mm-hmm. of people who have, like, you know, serious financial resources and, 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 make, uh, and make more, you know, larger-scale kinds of purchases. But again, I, I just want to keep that issue separate from immigration. Immigration is contributing to Canadian society in, in, in a very material way in the sense that people arrive here. They have kids here. The kids, you know become uh, part of the Canadian education system, eventually part of the Canadian labor market. That's a, that's a, a, a life investment into Canadian society, whereas um, foreign buyers I see as something that's quite a different category. Right. Yeah, I think it's interesting, this idea of slippage, uh, and it's a useful reminder for sure. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Daniel, for coming on. Um, we have uh, we have one last segment. It's called the Five Wire, Five Quick Questions about uh, about Vancouver and your experience in Vancouver. Can you stick around for that? Yep, sure. Okay, great. So uh, your favorite neighborhood in Vancouver? Wow, I live in Sunset, and I find it really quite, uh, quite nice. Um, favorite neighbors in Vancouver? I, I probably like more than anything the uh, the Main Street Corridor. Great. You'd be surprised how many people actually <laughs> say that. Yeah, I live just south of it. I'm, I live like twenty. I live at Main and Forty Fifth, so I'm kind of a fifteen twenty block walk, which is very pleasant kind of a walk. And a little really mountain like that corridor. Very nice. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Um, favorite bar or restaurant in Vancouver? Oh, wow. I, I'm I'm a bit of a foodie, so that is a really tough question. <laughs> um, 
let's just think for a minute. Um, you know, it's everything from, you know, I'm quite fond of, of just grabbing a burger somewhere to, to a really nice meal. Um, well, I'll just give you one place that I like going to from time to time is the Faux Bourgeoisie. Uh, that's, oh, that's, you know, yeah, around Fraser and, uh, Fraser and Kingsway. That's, I wouldn't say it's my favorite restaurant in Vancouver. It's a really hard question to answer, but it, it is one of the places I think is really, I, I really like. Yeah, not a bad place to eat, that's for sure. Uh, downtown Pentos or Westside Mansion? Uh, my heart says downtown penthouse, but my head says Westside Mansion. <laughs> Your investment mind says Westside Mansion, maybe. <laughs> All right. Well, sounds good. Where Where do you take someone from out of town, first place? Um. For, well, home, of course, but but um, the uh, <laughs> first the first time we get out of the house, usually like Granville Island, maybe. Sometimes UBC. Very nice. All right. And it's you talk a lot about Toronto and presumably a lot of your work focuses there. Uh, you may be biased for this one, but University of British Columbia or University of Toronto? Or McGill. Well, I teach at University <laughs> yeah. of British Columbia. So, <laughs> but, but I did my PhD at University of Toronto. So uh, I'm, oh, wow. I'm not going to... I'm not going to answer that question. Um, yeah, uh, divided what, what's allegiances. That, what's that? What's that old thing? Uh, whatever I say might incriminate me. So there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, th- thanks so much for your time, Daniel. That was that was really great. Yeah, fascinating. Okay, and uh, Daniel, just quickly, how can people find out more about your work? Uh, I have a personal website. Uh, they can, if they Google UBC Geography Hebert, uh, they will get to me very quickly. And also, the piece that's come out in Canadian, well, will be coming out in Canadian Journal of Urban Research, should be within like a week or two. So Excellent. very soon, that paper should be like widely available, freely downloadable, easy to access. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much once again. Yeah. Okay, you're welcome. Goodbye. Take care. Have a good day. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Daniel Hebert, professor of geography at the University of British Columbia. Really fascinating conversation with Daniel. I really enjoyed that interview. I uh, found it super enlightening and uh, glad we had him on. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, some of the takeaways, I mean, for you, Adam? You know, for me, it's really, it's that distinction between, uh, you know, foreign buyer and immigrant. And uh, Daniel does an excellent job highlighting that. Yeah. And I think it's something that uh, for our listeners and for people, it's obviously affordability and the foreign buyer dynamic in Vancouver, it's it's complicated, right? And and, and it's a real thing, but at the same time, it, it, he it provides this, clarity. I think in yeah, a way he, that it allows you to think about it a bit a bit clearer, and uh, hopefully that really resonates with uh, with our listeners. Yeah, I mean, and that idea of slippage to be careful, right? Between for sure, yeah. So what yeah, about you? I mean, for me, I think it suggests that the future of Vancouver real estate is makes you bullish. Bullish, yeah. I was going to say for affordability, who knows? But I mean, this idea that the the types of immigrants that come here and the culture of buying property and buying it very right. quickly uh, and the continued immigration, I mean, it's... We've talked about that at yeah. length, about the amount of immigrants coming, the amount of people to, coming to Va- Greater Vancouver in general, but Vancouver proper. Right, but, but it's more, I'm thinking along the lines of, you know, in contrast to say a place like Montreal, where there's not that culture of buying within five years, uh, certain yeah. ethnic groups, it's like 75%. Like that's so not only are immigrants destined to be coming to Vancouver, but they're also destined to be buying property and, and they have the financial wherewithal to do it. Yeah. Right. And the immediacy. 
Yeah, right? exactly. Um, so that's, yeah, really, really fascinating stuff. That was great. Um, so Matt, but before we cut out for the day, what else we got? Well, we should mention the the deal we talked about last week, that East yeah. Van House. So it has an accepted offer, the East Van House. Um, we wanted to put it out there. We, we do the deal of the month uh, every month. So if you sign up to our, our newsletter, you'll be benefiting like 17,000 other people that hear about the deal of the month. They also hear about tips and tricks and, and uh, market conditions and everything else. And you're going to be seeing deals like that 12 times a year. Well, that's the thing, right? But the reason we wanted to actually bring it up is because one thing we didn't consider when we mentioned it last week is we had a ton of people write us about it. And a lot of people have, <laughs> they have agents, right? Yeah. And I mean, this this makes it very tricky for us because we need to respect agency relationships out there. And we don't want to step on anyone's toes and we don't want to advise you to buy something. Meanwhile, you know, maybe your agent disagrees or, or whatever else. It's so, just a complicated, you so know, if it's you're like on dating, the list, right? you'll get the, the deal of the month. But if, if you have an agent and you get in touch for advice, we're always going to have to kind of send you back to your agent for advice. Yeah. And, you know, we want to help as much as we can. It's just, it's a tricky spot. It is a tricky spot. Uh, what else we got, Matt? Um, well, with, PCS. That, with, with that said, yeah, let's, let's say do get in touch. We're definitely asking everyone to still keep getting in touch. And the best way to do that is to go to Vancouver Real Estate podcast.com absolutely and sign up for private client services you'll get realtor level information so that means it's a research tool that gives you listings 36 to 72 hours before public mls you also get sold prices and you also get days on markets just it's it's fantastic it's the best resource out there definitely we also have that mobile app that basically does the same thing but it's really uh it's a bit more phone friendly yeah that's what i was gonna i was gonna say that yeah right right <laughs> Let me, let me do my pitch, man. Hey, Matt, do your pitch. Just quit stuttering. <laughs> so no, anyway, it's a, it's a fantastic app. Sold prices. It's, re- just, it's really useful. I mean, yeah. how's that friendly. for a pitch? <laughs> All right. Finally, we have a new position we're hiring for uh, at Scalina Real Estate. We are looking for a new office administrator. That's right. Um, we are super excited. Uh, if, if you know anybody that has a, a background in um, administrative work or if they're looking for a career, an exciting, dynamic career uh, with a very competitive salary plus bonus, get in touch. Yep. Uh, you can reach us. Uh, well, Matt, how can people reach well, you? Well, you reach. feel free to share this with your family or friends. Please yeah, do. Absolutely. Yeah, we want to hear the from word anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And call me if you have any questions about that, 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. And, and Mr. Uh, Brady D. Mr. Crypto. <laughs> Braden at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. And any any crypto questions, definitely definitely to, send, send them my way. To Braden. To the Ethereum himself. <laughs> Mr. Ripple. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay, Have guys. A good week. Yeah, enjoy. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. 
This podcast is sponsored by Common Ground Consulting. Are you developing in the Lower Mainland? Common Ground Consulting is a development management and consulting company with experience in single family, townhouses, multifamily, and commercial developments. What I love about Common Ground, Adam, is they manage the whole development process from due diligence and feasibility reports for initial purchase of land to completing rezoning, development permits, and building permits. They streamline the whole process with strong relationships with sub-consultants and municipalities and a deep understanding of all city requirements. Common Ground Consulting. Feasibility and efficiency prioritized every step of the way. Learn more at commonground-consulting.com or 604-807-6419. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. <laughs> 